Last Sunday evening, we had a lesson that, of course, was surrounding the topic of Bible questions and answers. And we, we typically, again, do that about once a month. And as a part of some of those questions, one of them, in fact, was directed somewhat in a way that included elements of predestination. And so I thought that this lesson might be, in some ways, a development of that idea. And for the next few moments tonight, why don't we give thought to the Bible doctrine of predestination? This opening slide is one that, in fact, not only provides a bit of a basis, but allows us a place of springboard to some of the things that will, in fact, follow. There are many words that are often used in the context of religion, and sometimes those words are used in a rather comforting and, 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 and wonderful way. But other times, sometimes those words are used in a somewhat troublesome way. And by that I mean that the human family has come to use them in a way different than the way the Bible teaches it. And that's certainly true in many ways with respect to predestination. And so tonight, why don't we take just a few minutes and develop Bible predestination starting like this. I suppose as we begin that lesson, it would certainly be fair to bring our mind to a given way of thinking that is the typical way that men have taught it. So I'd like to preface this lesson for the next few minutes by saying the next few minutes are going to be wrong. This is what men teach about predestination. But we're going to finish the lesson up by devoting a fair amount of time to reflecting upon what the Bible has to say about it. No doubt John Calvin set in course a number of matters connected to predestination because he's the founder of Presbyterianism and the whole idea of predestination is a key element of the doctrine of the Presbyterian Church. Now, it's not to say they're the only ones that teach this, because certainly it has come to be present in others as well. But certainly, John Calvin, in much of what he taught, had so much to say about predestination. It's quite easy to some, to some extent to remember the main elements of what he taught because it goes under the acronym of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And each one of those letters stands for something that John Calvin taught that, in fact, is what I'm just going to remind us of on this slide and part of the next one. According to John Calvin, T reminds us of total hereditary depravity. And by that big, long word, all he means is that Adam chose to sin. And every single person, every single human on the planet who's ever lived since then has inherited the guilt, or at least an association to his sin. And of course, what that means is that even babies, according to them, are born in sin. As you enter the world, you are already clouded, overwhelmed, and overcome by the very nature of sin. And you've inherited it from those before you, stretching all the way back to Adam, and primarily it's the guilt associated to his sin that you, in fact, have now inherited. Now, it might be fair to say there are verses that they will use to point us in that direction. One is Psalm 51.5. One is Lamentations 5.7. Neither of which, in context, teaches this, this particular idea. I would quickly offer a whole host of verses, and many others might be listed, that teach just the opposite of this. For instance, in Ezekiel 28.15, the king of Tyre was particularly told... Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thine heart. Now there the inspired prophet pointed out that gentleman was perfect from the time he began to have any existence in the womb of his mother. He was perfect 
up until he made choice to sin. He wasn't born in sin. He didn't inherit Adam's sin. He was perfect, the text says. But that's only one of a host of others that might be named. You might recall with me that in Matthew 18 as well as Matthew 19, Jesus, as he discussed children, he said they're the closest thing to heaven on earth. He didn't indicate anything about them being born in sin. In fact, he commented, you and I must be like them if we're going to be saved, Matthew 18, 3. It might be fair to note then that here even Jesus, as he commented about children, he drew them to him. That was on one occasion. He sat a little child in the midst and said, rather carefully, suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 19, verse 14. Those verses perhaps only lead us to the next one. That T under the idea of the tulip was wrong. What about U? The letter U stands for unconditional election. Now here is identically where it comes full force on predestination. In essence, that's what that word conveys. Unconditional election simply means, in the words of John Calvin, that the God of heaven, before he ever created this universe... He handpicks some to be saved. This one will be saved. This one will be saved. This one will be saved. But that one's lost. That one's lost. This one's lost. He made an initial selection despite anything that might otherwise be said about them. What they may choose or not choose to do, they're either lost or saved, and there's nothing they can do about it. That was his idea, believe it or not. This concept that God predestined some individuals to be saved while others to be lost, at this point, as John Calvin made that assertion, there are verses that sometimes they will use, such as 1 Peter 1 verse 2, and such as, again, Ephesians 1 verse 5. But again, neither of those verses, either grammatically or in context, teach either one of those ideas. And so again, I might quickly offer a few Bible verses in passing which again teaches the opposite of this. Because after all, if that idea is true, there is no free will. This person, there's nothing he can choose to do or not do. He's lost or she's damned despite anything else because God chose it to be that way. But how many verses in the Bible speak about an invitation that God sends forth inviting people to come? Doesn't the text in 1 Timothy 2, 4 say, God desires all men to be saved? And do we not read in Revelation 22, verse 17, Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. We could, in fact, continue this listing of verses many times over. God issues the opportunity and invites one and all to come to Him. And certainly it's not as if He predetermined and preselected some people, despite any effort they may make in any particular of their life. As you and I close that slide, what about L? T-U-L. Limited atonement. Now again, think like John Calvin for just a moment. In his idea, everybody's born in sin... And according to you, there is this unconditional election where God determines some people to be saved while others to be lost. Perhaps it's not surprising then that in Calvin's idea, L will be limited atonement. So Jesus didn't die for those that are lost. 
He only died for those that are saved. He only died for those that are the elect, the ones God predetermined to be saved. But is it that wrong as well? How often do we read in the Bible that the blood of Christ Jesus could be effective for every single person? I've asked you to note just a few verses. In 1 John 2, verse 2, speaking about Jesus and the blood that He shed, He is the perpetuation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Who does that leave out? The whole world. In Hebrews 2, verse 9, speaking about Christ, it says that He, by the grace of God, tasted death for every man. Again, that doesn't leave anyone out. Everyone has the opportunity to be saved. It's not that God, again, predetermined, and thus the Lord's death wasn't in any way effective for them. What about the letter I? We have T, U, and L. I is irresistible grace. In John Calvin's idea, this had to do with those people that God predestined to be saved. It is the case that they will hear of and do that which is needful. They will be drawn almost like you could imagine a magnet. They'll be drawn to the right place and the right time. And in so doing, they will come to know what needs to be known and will respond to it. But again, you might take note how carefully and how rather interesting that idea is. I ask you to notice on the slide a verse that's often used as 1 Peter 1 verse 2, but again, it doesn't teach that. In fact, the word elect is not even in the original Greek text in that verse. But notice the next set of verses that teach just the opposite of this. In Romans 10 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Paul said all should have done it, but they didn't. The gospel message has been sent forward and many who heard it, many who were in position to do so, had chosen not to. They had the free will to reject the will of God. Not only that, in Acts 26 28, Agrippa said he was almost persuaded. Now, some might argue the fact that, again, maybe he was on the side that he was not of the predestined group to be saved. But it's interesting that he trembled, and in so doing, he was mindful of the urgency of what Paul had preached, and it touched him in a way that led him to say that he understood the nature of Christians. He just was not interested, at least fully, at that point. Consider that next pair of verses. In 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and following, a reference is made to some who had come to be Christians, but they chose to walk away from it. And of them it was said the latter end was worse than the beginning. Now, if it was true they had already been lost from the beginning, and now the latter end is even worse, what then does irresistible grace have to do with this? Clearly it doesn't seem to match consistently at all. The letter P is the last one, perseverance of the saints. In Calvin's idea, once a person's lost, you, I'm sorry, saved, you shall be saved due to the power of that irresistible grace, and you can never so live in a way to become lost, never. Now at that point, you and I have noted on many occasions a whole host of verses that teach just the opposite of that one. I've asked for you to consider 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. If it's not possible to fall, what 
possible meaning does that verse have? If it's not possible to fall. Surely in that light, could we not remember Paul as he referred to himself in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27? Paul there said that he himself had to constantly buffet his body lest he would be a castaway. Even Paul understood the reality that he could again become lost. This idea of the perseverance of the saints is just not biblical. At this point, I close that slide by saying, this doctrine, this set of ideas of Calvinistic predestination simply are not true. The Bible does not teach them. But yet you and I often hear those who do have interest in them and many who in fact believe parts of them. But if the Bible doesn't teach predestination in this form, what kind of predestination does it teach? What does the Word of God say about predestination? On this next slide, I simply will invite us to walk through this. There's really only a very few verses in the Bible that use this word predestination. I begin that slide by inviting you to notice there's only four, at least in English. There are four verses in English that make a direct reference to this word predestination. And therefore, it really isn't that difficult to read all four of them. It won't take very long. And we will note them as parts of our lesson proceed this evening. But could I point out to you the Greek word that actually is translated as predestination in those words, that Greek word occurs six times. Clearly, the four that I've already noted. But there's two additional ones, and you and I will even note them as well as a portion of our lesson proceeds tonight. In fact, I invite you to note two of them almost immediately. In Acts chapter 4, verse number 28, we have this first occurrence that we shall note in which we find that Greek word that's translated as predestined. As you and I read it, it speaks volumes about the nature of the idea and some of the issues connected to it. Acts chapter number 4, allow me to read verse number 28. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Determined before is the way the King James has rendered that particular phrase. But the idea of the original Greek word is this word in other places translated to predestinate. To be predestined. And you'll notice here the meaning is easy to appreciate, isn't it? It is to be determined beforehand. It is to, in fact, make selection of and previous appreciation of a course, an idea. It was determined beforehand. And thus, there are many ways in which you and I use the idea in life. You and I, at some point, may make a determination. After lunch tomorrow, I'm going to accomplish or do this. Well, you have determined beforehand that that's what you're going to do at that particular moment. If it comes to pass, if those proceedings arise and that circumstance develops and you accomplish that, you predestined it the previous day that that's what would be done. Well, thus the idea of predestination, I think, is easy to understand. It means to appreciate something, to determine something beforehand. You and I have already learned, John Calvin said, that in the far distant recesses of the past, in fact, long before he even created the universe, he determined beforehand who would be saved and who would not be saved. And we've already learned that's not true. 
that idea is not individually applied the correct thing to say. So what does the Bible mean? As you step to that next idea on the slide, could I direct your attention to Ephesians 1, beginning in verse number 3? In that passage, we shall encounter this word, predestinate, and as we do, we shall find some information that will aid us significantly in the understanding of what this what it is the Bible teaches us about this subject. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We'll continue into the next verse in just a moment. But could I invite us already to notice that Paul has pronounced a blessing on the nature of the wonderful God of heaven. And in verse number 3, it's highlighted that this God of heaven has blessed us. Notice it with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So every spiritual blessing is under consideration. There isn't any that's left out. That would certainly include forgiveness, justification, sanctification, the recipient of the blessings of the Holy Spirit, connection to God, the hope of heaven, all of these and many others would thus be included in the spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. He qualifies it quickly by saying, these are in heavenly places and they are in Christ. Let's now go into verse 4. Here's an explanation about this statement he has just made. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You can begin to see where John Calvin may have gotten part of this. Here the inspired writer points out that before the foundation of the world, the God of heaven made some kind of a selection. It says he chose us in him. At this point, can't you and I maybe see where John Calvin might have gotten something like this? Now, certainly, we haven't gotten to the end of the story. But you notice this selection before the foundation of the world had been made. As we close that fourth verse, you'll note with me that it says that we should be holy and without blame. Among other things, that highlights for us that the consideration has to do with there is a conduct. Notice, we're supposed to be without blame. We furthermore highlighted that we are to be holy. With those as background, consider with me that which follows in verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And there's our word, predestinated. You notice it's in this very context involving this selection, this choice made by God. So you and I now need to ask the question, who is it that God predestinated? And how is it that that predestination was brought about? And what are the consequences of it? We've already begun to see some of them are listed here rather immediately. As you close that particular slide with me, it's fair to say that this predestination is immediately described like this. It's unto a particular end, the adoption, the text says, of children. 
immediately we are told then that this concept of Bible predestination links and associates clearly and immediately with adoption. But it's not just arbitrary adoption. It says it's adoption of children by Jesus Christ. We'll need to keep that in mind, especially as we transition to the next slide. You can immediately tell then that this predestination, it's under description, is immediately categorized like this in verses 6 and 7. Notice it's immediately after what we just noted. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Those that are predestined are the ones Paul wrote that enjoy redemption from sin. Those predestinated are those that enjoy forgiveness of sin. If it's then the case that we can understand from the Word of God how is forgiveness of sins to be enjoyed, how is it to take place, then we have figured out what is said about the nature of who it is that's predestined. Who is it that's predestinated? One of the first things you can notice, and maybe it's a shock as to how Calvin must have missed it, if in this verse this predestination is highlighted in the sense of it's connected by adoption to Christ, it's connected to the remission of sins, it's connected to the forgiveness of sins, it's connected to the grace of God, then you can begin to ask, how did God predestine these to be lost? Eternally and forever lost, damned into hell. How does that come out of this passage? It clearly doesn't. There's nothing here said about that. On this next slide, why don't we take that at least one step further? Could I at least remind us, what we've read so far is enough to demolish the concept of Bible predestination as being one and the same with Calvinistic predestination. They are not. There's no connection between these. All of that stuff Calvin taught that I mentioned earlier, that tulip doctrine, none of it's biblical. None of it is in according to the Word of God. Total hereditary depravity is wrong. Unlimited grace is wrong. The L part, limited atonement is wrong. Irresistible grace. The perseverance of the saints. But as you begin to see in this text, who is it that God predestined? And this point is rather critical. It's not that He predestined individuals to either be saved or lost. He predestined a community of people. Those that are in a certain sphere, those are the ones predestined. Who is in that sphere? Who is it that's in that community, if you please? Notice adoption's already there. It's they that are in the family of God. They that are, in fact, in the same family Christ is in. They're the ones predestined. They're the ones that have been adopted into the family of God. For that reason on the slide, look with me at some of these further developments that help us see that even more critically. I invited you to notice this text in Ephesians chapter 1. Did you notice something? That the adoption of sons now might lead us to give thought to the family of God. Would you turn back with me to Romans the 8th chapter? This is the other place where that word is found in such dramatic tone. Romans chapter 8. I'll read a few of the verses of that chapter. Could I begin by calling your attention, beginning in verse number 28. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You and I often use that 31st verse as a reminder of the strength that's available in faith. If God's for us, who can be against us? But I fear sometimes we mistake a bit the context. Although the later parts of this chapter directly take us in a direction such as that, notice what immediately preceded this. It was predestination. In light of what you and I have learned, if you and I are in the family of God, having obeyed the gospel, having thus been adopted into that family, John 1 verse 12, then you and I are the very ones whom God predestined before the foundation of the world that they are the ones to be the recipients of salvation. It's not that he handpicked Randy Bybee in one of those categories, and you can put your name there as well. He predestined that all who are Christians faithful to the Lord will be in that community of the saved, and they are the ones he predestined that they will enjoy the blessedness of His grace because they have known the forgiveness of their sins and they're the ones that God determined beforehand that they would be saved. You notice how different that is from this Calvinistic idea. You and I recognize in that though, as we develop it more thoroughly, what exactly did Paul say that helps us amplify that thought? Back to verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Notice the predestination has nothing to do with those lost. They aren't conformed to the image of his Son. They aren't Christians. They have not chosen to become so. They're living a life in rebellion to God in light of the Son of God. But those that are predestined, they give effort under the banner of a verse like this one to try and live as Jesus would wish them to, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Doesn't that remind us of Romans 12, verses 1 and following, where Paul made observation there that you and I live in such a way that we're living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, and we are not conformed to this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind to prove what's that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. But let's read on. Verse number 29 finishes by saying that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is said to be our elder brother. Notice, He isn't said to be the elder brother of those who are lost. He's the elder brother of those conformed to the image of Himself, those who are the family of God. Let's read in the next verse. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. Notice again, the gospel message is sent forth to one and all. All are blessed to be able to hear, but not all will respond in faith by obedience. Then it says, whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. 
Who is it that's justified before God? Who is it that's glorified? Who is it, according to that verse, that have responded to the calling in the way that leads to those blessings? Calvinistic predestination seems not very close at all to what these verses are indicating. It might well be in that light as you and I inch toward the closing part of that slide. We could be so impressed by the fact that this idea of Bible predestination takes us to those who in recognition of the offer of God through the nature of the Christ relinquish the matter of their life and in so doing they're the recipients of these blessings. It might well be in that light that this last particular slide is one that develops one last connection. We highlighted it especially in the Ephesians passage. But on more than one occasion, Paul connected that predestination. It says that they were foreordained in Him. One must be in Him in order to be those that were predestined, and thus those that are the ones to receive these blessings. But how does one come to be in Him? And how do you know whether you're in Him or not? Because clearly it's they or the predestined ones. We each know the answer to that, how it links so beautifully and so powerfully to the reality of baptism. As I make that comment, you and I know that it is in Galatians 3 that we read these statements. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. One comes to be in Him when one is baptized into Him. And the Romans passage of Romans 6 echoes that sentiment perhaps even as strongly. It might well be, as we have tried to do justice to this concept of Bible predestination, it is a strong statement about God's relation to the church. The church are those predestined. If you and I are faithful members of the church, we are under, among that group that has been predestined. I close the lesson tonight with one final verse. But it is a verse that's quite often used, and it is in many ways one of the very first verses that they who believe in Calvinistic predestination will attempt to use. And so I thought we might do well to take just a moment, reflect upon it, and see what it is about it that they are taking in an incorrect way. It's John chapter 6, verse number 37. It is in that verse that Jesus Himself in speaking made this statement. And in many ways that does add to its strength. But John 6 verse 37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that, over, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And so there are some that will say, Well, there it is. All that the Father hath given will come to Christ. Doesn't that teach irresistible grace? And it goes on to say that him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Doesn't that teach the perseverance of the saints? No, it doesn't. It doesn't teach either one of them. In fact, could you and I notice this? As you start that verse with me, all that the Father giveth me, you and I might take note that as the emphasis is given, I've asked you to note somewhat about the verb tense. Again, you and I read that giveth is a present tense verb. 
It's not that God somehow in the far distant ages of past eternity made this selection. The verb tense alone does not even teach that. It is in fact so inconsistent to appreciate it. This is an ongoing matter in which each one is allowed the opportunity to choose for him or herself. Those that choose to follow the Lord are those that the God of heaven has given. But what about the latter part of the verse? Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That doesn't have anything to do with this perseverance of the saints. What that verse says is that that person that comes to Jesus, Jesus will not refuse him or her. The Lord will not turn him or her away and refuse to allow his blood to be beneficial for them. In fact, could you not notice? Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Notice, that doesn't say anything at all about that person can choose of his or her own volition to leave. The Lord won't force them to stay. If a person chooses to want to not follow the Lord after becoming a Christian, this verse doesn't say anything about the Lord not allowing that person to leave. And we have many examples in the Bible of those who did that very thing. What about Hymenaeus and Alexander in the book of 2 Timothy? What about others mentioned in, say, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5? As you and I come to the close of our lesson tonight, we've attempted to reflect upon Bible predestination. And this closing slide is a very brief attempt to summarize a few of the points that you and I have seen this evening. First, we would agree it's an important Bible topic. The Bible mentions it on these few occasions. But having no the Bible mention of it, the way men typically present it under the teaching of John Calvin is not consistent with the Bible. No single element of it is. But what the Bible does teach is that the beauty and the blessedness connected to those who have responded in faith to the Lord's invitation and who have become faithful Christians, they are the ones predestined. They're the ones called, justified. They're the ones glorified. They're the ones spoken of as having their sins forgiven having their sins remitted, enjoying the forgiveness available in the words of Ephesians chapter 1. As we close this lesson tonight, I hope that we've each been encouraged by the Bible's teaching on a subject such as this one and that we can appreciate again how blessed the church is to be that community of people who are the saved, Ephesians 5.23. They have relinquished control of their life to the Father and they serve the Lord Jesus Christ absolutely. Tonight, we extend the Lord's invitation, even at this time. If there be someone in this assembly that perhaps has reached a moment of understanding in which, though once a faithful Christian, as of tonight, you're not. Oh, the Lord still loves you, and His blood is still powerful enough to make things right in your life, but you need to make the decision to allow that to take place. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. If we could be of some assistance or help, perhaps in light of being a faithful Christian at one time, you know you need to make repentance and confession of error. We'd be delighted tonight to encourage you in that regard, to pray to God and recognize that He has promised to forgive. If we could be of help in that way tonight, we certainly would wish to do that. And we'll extend that invitation while together we stand and while we sing.